Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one: giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org/donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org/donate. Thank you for your support and thanks for listening. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. After failing to help get a comprehensive national energy bill through Congress the past couple of years, environmentalists are back on their heels and playing defense. With the Environmental Protection Agency's ability to regulate clean air and water under attack, national environmental groups are circling their wagons around the EPA and pondering where and when they can go on offense. I'm Greg Dalton, and for the next hour, we'll discuss the health and direction of environmentalism in America with our live audience at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. Joining us for this conversation are executives from three national environmental groups. Michael Brune is executive director of the Sierra Club. Felicia Marcus is director of the Natural Resources Defense Council. And Karen Topakian is board chair of Greenpeace USA. Please welcome them to Climate One. Um, thank you all for coming. Thank you. Uh, let's, we want to be mainly forward-looking, but let's start a little bit with recent history. Um, Felicia Marcus, environmental groups spent hundreds of millions of dollars trying to get a national energy bill, national climate bill through. It didn't happen. Was that money wasted or time wasted? Well, I don't think so. I think climate, climate change is the issue of our time and a crucially important one. And I think that was one huge battle in what has to be a long-term uh, and focused and engaged, an ongoing battle. It's, it's too big to be disheartened after that skirmish. In fact, I think it's fascinating that we got as far as we did, considering that after we got it or during the time we got a bill actually passed through the House of Representatives, which I never would have thought possible. Mm-hmm. Um, if you asked me, I would have said it would have taken longer. We, we did it in the context of the biggest economic meltdown in many of our lifetimes um, and at a time where that meltdown was the result of market failures or regulation failures. So the fact that we got as far as we did, I think, was rather remarkable. And I think that um, we just have to keep at it in using every tool that we have. I mean, the regulatory arena is one tool. There are market transformation and figuring out how to uh, build uh, not only a green energy economy, but also design our cities in a more livable, sustainable way are things that we can keep doing just as we figure out how to go back to the barricades and get to a better answer for the, the future. So, um, you know, round one. Okay. Michael Brune, the Sierra Club was less enthusiastic about cap and trade, didn't join the U.S. Climate Action Partnership, a group of environmental organizations mm-hmm. and corporations. How do you view that chapter of the, the long climate um, struggle? I, I wouldn't even give it a chapter, to be honest with you. Uh, even for the groups that were uh, almost primarily uh, uh, focused on getting comprehensive climate legislation passed, even those organizations had uh, large bodies of other work focusing on state solutions or local city solutions or addressing different aspects of climate change. It was fascinating for me because I started as the executive director of the Sierra Club last year, and in almost every interview that I did and almost every meeting that I went to, particularly on the Hill or with the White House, every single conversation was about, will we get 60 senators to pass comprehensive climate legislation? Yeah. When that really represented just a, the tip of the iceberg, just part of the conversation about climate change. For the Sierra Club, we were putting vast, a vastly larger amount of resources towards stopping the construction of new coal-fired power plants or 
retiring existing coal plants and replacing them with clean energy, or addressing oil drilling in the Arctic or the Gulf or on public lands, or working on smart legislation at the state level to accelerate the development of clean energy. Now, it's been interesting in, in how the, the, the headline for 2010 in the climate movement was, we didn't pass a climate bill, so therefore we must be failing, or therefore we must be on our heels, as you say, mm-hmm. when in reality the story is much more complex. We actually have, in some cases, built a big roster of important victories uh, and, and have also suffered some defeats at the local level. But I think having a more comprehensive understanding of the complexity of our climate debate will help us to focus on the things that matter in, the say, the next five years or so. But a lot of money went into into that bill. I mean, a lot of resources that could have gone somewhere else. I mean, hundreds sure. of millions of dollars. I mean, and you were all in the marketplace trying to raise money. That's a, lot, a big resource diversion that you've got to say that was, you know, powder that was spent on something that didn't work out. Yeah. Well, <laughs> first of all, if there were hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, that's news to me, and I'd love to know where that couple hundred million dollars went. Well, there's some I, reports out there that depends on... The, it's a little squishy. Um, But fair to say, a lot of money was spent on getting a climate bill. And in hindsight, could we have spent the money on different things? Uh, I think it's it's easy to judge after the fact both where the money was spent as well as how the money was spent. And certainly, uh, and the Sierra Club was part of the, to be fair, part of the effort to try to pass a climate bill. We have, uh, all the groups who were involved have done an analysis of what worked and what didn't work. And... Some of the things that we've learned were that uh, positive attributes of the effort to pass a climate bill is that there was a higher level of collaboration among the environmental community than we've ever really seen or achieved on any issue in the past. You had the executive directors and CEOs talking several times a week, collaborating on strategies, doing joint organizing at the state and federal level, coordinating our campaign messaging, you know, our work with the media, and these are the things that our donors and the public expect of us. If we have common goals, we should have a common strategy to achieve those goals. So developing that level of collaboration is something we can carry forward into other issues. But then there's a lot of things that we didn't do very well collectively as a movement that we have to focus on in the fights ahead. And you know, hopefully over we'll get, the next we'll hour so we can talk yeah. about those. Yeah. Karen Topakian, uh, Greenpeace was not a supporter of, of cap-and-trade, and we've had a number of people here who... Um, we're actually very critical of cap-and-trade and might be pleased that Waxman-Markey bill didn't pass because mm-hmm. they think it was the wrong way to address the problem. What's your mm-hmm. view on that? Well, my view and the organization's view are the same, was that we did not support the bill because it didn't follow the science, and that to us was the important part of it. And we got out early of not supporting it along with Friends of the Earth, and I think we were the only two kind of members of the big green group who didn't support it. We did not actively work against it. We just didn't support it and didn't participate in the arguments with it. But we felt that it really wasn't the bill that went far enough. If we're probably only going to get one, let's get the best one we can get, and this one wasn't that. So that was our argument about why we didn't support it. There were a number of other things. As it as it, it, it arrived weak and as it went down the line, it got weaker, and the subsidies to coal and dirty fossil fuel extraction were not something that we were going to get behind. And um, so that was our argument for not doing it. And And now I feel like what we're doing is much more at the grassroots level, and we're working to build a movement of people from the ground who will support the best climate change legislation that we can get, and also will work on their local level to stop it in their own community. I feel like to get a climate bill passed now, we need a broad environmental movement to do that. We didn't have it then, and hopefully we, we're, we're building it now, and we're building it with our colleagues here. And that's what it's going to take to be able to get the bill that we want and we need. So let's pivot to the future. What is the strategy for the next three or five years? We're entering an elections, presidential election cycle. Is the goal of your organization still to get a national, comprehensive climate bill? Or is it more uh, piece by piece at the state level or different pieces of federal action that would address the problem? Well, I think, I think one of the most important, well, we're in very complex times, as Michael said, and they're complex for a number of reasons. One is the political dynamic we're dealing with with the tsunami of the economic meltdown along with the Tea Party and, uh, the sort of incredible, uh, rhetoric that is, think, it thinks that a, a jobs bill means dismantling EPA. I mean, it's almost unthinkable. So at the same time as we have to play defense, we have to defend the bedrock environmental laws we have. So we have to shift 
some resources into playing defense on those things that are most important to protecting people's health, protecting the environment, uh, and creating a strong economy, frankly. Um, so we're having to fight on a couple of fronts. So just as everyone said, we're trying to create a future in which we have clean energy, clean communities, clean food, and the like. We have to deal not just with playing defense. We have to create a vision of the future that people are for. So I think the strategy, at least for the immediate future, is defending those bedrock environmental laws at the same time as we're moving forward on creating a clean energy economy and smart communities that are more livable. And all of that has been going on not just at the national level but at the state and local level where cities really lead the way on a lot of these things and figuring out how to link ourselves in every way we can, whether it's with uh, progressive business and people in whose economic interest it is to do the right thing, as well as accountability campaigns and building a movement. We, we have to fight on many different fronts at the same time and continue to create those beacons of hope that we have in California, for example, where uh, in addition to having a, a landmark climate law that is based on, in part, cap and trade, but by and large, the complementary policies that are going to make our communities more economically and environmentally sound, um, an attempt to roll that back was resoundingly defeated. I mean, it was the right. Prop 23 campaign, the votes against Prop 23, which would have rolled back AB 32, got the highest number of votes of anything in the country. So there is a mood out there where people do care about these things, but there's a level of, A, it's a, as you can see, it's a complex level of Part of that is because California has the biggest biggest population, but that was certainly a high point in that electoral, yeah, I'll take electoral it. cycle. Mm -hmm. uh, Michael Bruhn, is a national comprehensive energy bill, is that still a goal of the Sierra Club, or are you looking more to the states, which is kind of your roots as a chapter organization? Uh -huh. Yeah, we think that eventually to solve climate change, there needs to be binding national and then international legislation that will force a reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. How that happens, we are more agnostic than we've been in the past. We're, there's lots of different ways in which that can happen, lots of different policy vehicles. And the time frame uh, is something that we also are more flexible on than we were in the past. We think that the best thing to do for the next three to five years is to get real and get local. By getting real, what I mean is that we, in the effort to pass a climate bill last year, uh, much of the environmental community got really abstract. Most of the conversation was about parts per millions or complex you know, trading mechanisms. And my mom, who's smart and she's a school teacher, didn't understand it. You know, my wife didn't understand it. A she lot of the people talking about it didn't understand it. Right. Yeah. That exactly. was the problem. <laughs> and so it's hard to motivate people around an issue where they get the moral imperative, but they don't really understand what it is that you're trying to do and how your solutions will address uh, the problems that you're identifying. And so, um, in addition to that, we weren't, we, we didn't make a really clear and compelling case for how this will affect people's everyday lives and help, how our solutions help Americans to solve many of their everyday problems. So, what the Sierra Club is doing is we're going back to our roots and focusing on the grassroots, very specific local struggles that are emblematic of a larger problem. And the best example of that is our work on coal-fired power plants. Over the last few years, the Sierra Club and a big grassroots movement of organizations have helped to stop the construction of 153 new coal plants all across the country. Now we're focusing on the existing fleet of old, dirty, dangerous, deadly coal plants. There's about 600 of them across the country. We want to retire them and replace them with clean energy. Half of America breathes air that is unsafe. So for half of the people in the country, when you breathe, you're threatening your health. Half of America lives within 30 miles of a coal plant, which is the circle of pollution that surrounds these coal plants. So by getting real, what we're talking about is we're talking about specific places that literally and figuratively cast a shadow of their communities, and we want to create an ecological U-turn where those plants are retired and opening up the space for clean energy. And we think that that's a way not only to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in a significant way in the short term. And it's also an opportunity to bring in clean energy that will power our economy for the next century, but it will change energy politics in this country so that any type of federal comprehensive legislation will be a lot stronger, something that we can all support, and it'll do a lot more of a better job at actually meeting the 
uh, you know, solving the problems that, that we need to face. The abstraction that you mentioned, Climate One's gone through the same thing. We spent a lot of time here talking about cap and trade and one of the reasons we focus on buildings, cars, and food is because they're tangible things everyone can relate to uh, every day. Karen Tabakian, what is Greenpeace doing in terms of uh, its strategy looking forward now? I would say that Greenpeace is not working today on a comprehensive um, energy bill. What we're looking at is coal-fired plants. And we are, our plan is to close 150 of the dirtiest ones by 2015. So that's a short time horizon and a big job. But we have grassroots activists around the country working with their sole job is to do this. And we work often with um, Sierra Club and successfully to do these kinds of things. And we're looking for a replacement on clean energy. But it's also because we're talking about this not in an abstract way, but in a public health way, mm-hmm. about the asthma rate, about the respiratory illness rate, about the fact that 13,000 people a, a day die as a result of breathing this in. So we're making it tangible to people. If you start talking about um, fuel in a way that's abstract, people don't get it. Like, really, what does that have to do with me today? I just don't want to pay more for gas. That's often what people say. Just don't make me pay more for gas. Not thinking about the breathing aspect that goes into all of that in the coal-fired plant. So that's our goal, and it's also to have 50% of the energy in the U.S. be clean energy by 2050. And so those are the two goals we're working on. And what we have Greenpeace as a very big toolbox a very big one, and we will use any and all of those tools to accomplish that goal. So it sounds like the goals are more specific and tangible, specific concrete things, sectors, things. Felicia Marcus? Well, I would just add to that. I mean, I think we are in alignment that fighting dirty fuels and then creating an opening for clean fuels is is probably the central issue because energy is such a big part of that. And uh, we each play our own role. I mean, a lot of the work that we're working on, in addition to being more relevant to people's lives, and, and, and it, that happens has the virtue of being true. It's not just a, a marketing thing, and I think we did go into a flight of wonkiness for a while on climate. That was unfortunate. Um, and I, th- I think uh, because it, actually that issue is the potential great unifier of our time. I mean, not just across the environmental movement or across the economy, but across generations. I mean, it, it has this great potential to be that. It also had the potential to be the giant sucking sound that drew um, attention and resources away from the really important public health issues, including clean water, clean land, toxics, and food. And I think now we're at a place where we can we can use it as a way to create and talk about a future that is actually at some level complex, but at another much more clear to the average person. So, for example, we are doubling down on something that we've been working on for the last 30 years, which is the very low glamour, high value issue of energy efficiency. I mean, that is a huge Mm. focus of our work where you look at um, not just trying to build new the, the buildings of the future cleaner, but actually retrofit all the energy hogs that are out there. In addition, you know, transportation is a whole nother arena where we just had a nice uh, victory on mileage standards. But for buildings themselves, we're spending a lot of time trying to figure out what are the market mechanisms and tools to get people to retrofit their buildings, which ends up with a huge energy saving and an incredible net climate benefit. And we've had tremendous successes, including the whole Empire State Building. I mean, there are people in the private sector who get this and figuring out how to leverage them doing it faster and even more profitably is, again, uh, not... It's not a soundbite, but it's very substantial. So I think you find us all trying to focus on things people can relate to. But again, they're all of a piece of creating not only a greener future, but a more livable future and a more economically viable future than the one we happen to be living in right now. Karen Topakian, I often think of Greenpeace as, as adversarial with corporations, uh, you know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, catapulting down from their roof, et cetera. Yet mm-hmm. you've had some collaboration uh, with corporations on this very issue of efficiency, et cetera. Coke, Unilever, PepsiCo. Mm-hmm. Are those your enemies or your collaborators? Today, there are allies on the issue of refrigerants. So we're very specific about this. We have a campaign called the Solutions Campaign run by a one-woman show run by Amy Larkin, who has been working for the past few years at very high levels in these corporations to remove the um, F gases from all of the vending machines that Coke and those companies own. This is a, a huge victory for us. And actually, after our conversation the other day, I learned that Amy won an award along with these same corporations from Harvard's uh, 
Harvard University's Kennedy School of Business. She won the Roy, she won the Roy Family Award for the progress made working with these companies to get rid of the F gases. Now, this is huge. So now what she's doing is she's taking it to the next level, and she's working on them making them more energy efficient. She's working on with these corporations to to control their supply chain so that it's renewable energy and it's clean energy on their supply chain as well. So, yes, and we will work with corporations once they are doing the things that we want them to do. But when they stop doing that, no longer. Uh, Kimberly Clark's another one, I think, where you did some no virgin growth work there and got them to bring their uh, industry peers along, right? Exactly. And that was on the, the clear-cutting campaign, so that you don't use virgin forest growth for toilet tissue. I mean, if there's one thing that doesn't need to be virgin, it's toilet tissue, but they were. And so we did a very public and active campaign against them. We got them to turn around. They said they would use recycled fiber content in their toilet mm. tissues. And now they were so kind of, I hate to use the word, but blown away by the way we did this and our successes with it, that they're now going to their colleagues and urging them to do the same thing and talking to other corporations saying, you really need to go the green renewable route. You really need to do this. So they've now become our ally on this when they were a huge adversary for years. Karen Topakian is board chair of Greenpeace USA. Our other guests today at Climate One of the Commonwealth Club are Michael Bruhn, executive director of the Sierra Club, and Felicia Marcus, Western Director of the Natural Resources Defense Council. Uh, Michael Brune, does the Sierra Club collaborate with corporations? Or uh, there was one incident with Clorox where I think a lot of your members got upset about whether you had sold out to Clorox to put a seal on some of their products. What's, what's your view now? Uh, that we need corporations to be part of the solutions, and sometimes they're part of the problem. Right? So uh, there are a number of different environmental organizations that have done great work in this space. You know, mm-hmm. Stuff that Karen and Amy and the uh, folks at Greenpeace are doing, Rainforest Action Network, Forest Ethics. There's a lot of organizations who are almost exclusively focused at changing corporate behavior, moving companies from being adversaries to allies uh, that we respect, and the Sierra Club will probably do more of that work in the years ahead. Really looking at uh, cha- challenging companies who have uh, a large presence in the marketplace and large brands in, in America and asking them, urging them, inspiring them, uh, and pushing them to be a more a part of an aggressive solution. And at the same time, there are some companies who are already in the solutions field, and what we want to do with those companies is to organize and mobilize them. So in that in that space, you know, maybe uh, there's companies like Sun, you know, just in the Bay Area, Sungevity or Solar City or Sunrun. These are companies that all uh, do solar leases. So if you want to put solar panels up on your roof, and you may not be able to afford the twenty or thirty thousand dollars or ten thousand dollars that it would cost to do that, these companies help you to engage and put solar panels up on your roof for hardly any money down or no money down. Um, what we want to do is help these companies to be more of a potent political force. Uh, if you go to Appalachia today, West Virginia, Kentucky, and if you engage in a peaceful rally or protest to help to protect the mountains there from being blown up, literally destroyed to get at the coal that's underneath, you'll typically find at every rally there will be a couple hundred citizens from the neighborhoods there who don't want to see their backyards destroyed for coal and that day the coal industry will give all of their workers off uh, or actually they won't give their workers off they will pay them to go to these rallies and they will lean on the horns of their flatbed trucks and their pickup trucks and drown you out and they'll intimidate everybody who goes there they'll take their picture they'll follow them home um, what we want to do is we don't want to have that same belligerent attitude. We don't want to bully people. But there are 100,000 workers right now in the solar industry, 100,000 people who are employed at creating a clean energy economy. That's more workers than you find in the coal mining industry. It's more workers than you find in the steel and iron manufacturing industries. But they have a fraction of the political clout. So part of what the Sierra Club wants to do, in addition to supporting and joining in on efforts of Greenpeace and others and challenging companies, is we want to amplify the voices of the companies who are already doing good work and make them more politically relevant and politically powerful. That's interesting because there, there's various sort of green chambers of commerce, but the mm-hmm. voices seem fragmented yeah. and they're not mature because they're, they're mature. and the companies don't have as much money to put into those sorts of things. So yeah. it seems like that's very interesting. Uh, Felicia Marcus, you want to chime in on that? No, just I mean we're part of this interesting paradigm shift of 
of moving from that dirty energy economy to a cleaner energy economy. And so the skirmishes or battles are going to be more pitched. I, I was going to say, I mean, we are all partnering with businesses in different ways that we feel have the leverage, why not, to change the world and add to our voices. But I, I don't think the, the president of Massey Coal wouldn't write love notes to any of our organizations because we're out there fighting mountaintop removal tooth and nail and shining a spotlight on the the horrible coal ash disaster and all of that, which is exactly what we should do. But it's part of the interesting thing in the movement where it is a both and. It's a carrot and a stick. It's a use every tool we can to separate the good guys from the bad guys and understand more about the economics to level the playing field for the good guys because the bad guys are very heavily subsidized and have an enormous array of uh, megaphones, if you will, whether it's the existing chamber of commerce or not. And the fact that we're there are growing numbers of green chambers of commerce or a growing number of groups like environmental entrepreneurs, which is a group of independent business people that advocate in tandem with us, is just showing that there is a movement out there and we need to figure out how to leverage it and bring more people under the tent. How do your organizations uh, deal with corporate contributions being party to greenwashing, right? right. Some corporations, so how do you, NRDC has a committee that guides over we that? We have a committee. We also have a policy of not taking any corporate contributions. So zero. We, zero. And we, um, which means we have to fundraise for a lot of the work we do with corporations. But um, we, uh, and when we have a community, uh, uh, corporate relations committee that gnashes over everything that has a, a corporate um, angle, whether it's a celebrity doing an ad for a watch company or a, I mean, it even goes to just optics. It's not about money necessarily. And we, we spend a lot of time internally um, talking about whether this is something we're comfortable with and, and, and sometimes we do, we do it and sometimes we don't. Michael Brew? Yeah, you know, we, um, we're actually reviewing our corporate donations policy right now because um, we need to be quite careful, obviously. The thing about the Sierra Club that is unique from Greenpeace and NRDC and just about any group in the environmental movement is that we are volunteer-led, right? So uh, it's our, if you're a member of the Sierra Club, if you write a check for 30 bucks, get, the, get our magazine, you elect every year, there's, a, there's an election where you vote for the board of directors. And it's that board of directors, entirely volunteer, that sets our policies in this incredibly inclusive, messy, lengthy democratic, democratic process. Yeah. Um, so there's a, there's a built-in firewall that's there, and that our, it's our grassroots uh, volunteers who set policies that is different from uh, <clears throat> what issues we're prioritizing, the strategies to advance those policies and the fundraising that, that occurs. So uh, we have a little bit of insurance, but but to the extent that we're partnering with corporations, the, you know, what's paramount is that we need to remain independent of the companies that we're trying to change. We take that seriously. And while we're on this fundraising point, um, I've heard someone say recently that, wow, I knew Michael Broom was a good fundraiser, but I didn't know he was that good. $50 million from, from Mayor Bloomberg. Tell us how that happened and how that's going to affect your your coal efforts. The, for people who don't know, the, gov- the Mayor Bloomberg gave $50 million to your coal campaign. Yeah, well, first, thank you. Um, so, yeah, earlier this year, earlier this summer, Mayor Bloomberg announced a $50 million gift uh, to the Sierra Club's Beyond Coal effort. And what we, uh, with a shaky hand, what we agreed to at the Sierra Club was to make our goals public, which are we fully intend to retire a third of the coal plants in the country in the next five years uh, and to replace every one of those coal plants with a combination, uh, an aggressive combination of clean energy sources. Uh, so what that will mean is in five years, we will have a 90% reduction in mercury pollution, which is a, the most potent form of, I think, someone at NRDC called brain pollution, uh, which uh, affects children and, and um, uh, young mothers. Uh, we will have a dramatic reduction in greenhouse gases and a big scale-up of clean energy. What we did in the, in the process of our conversation with the mayor is, uh, well, the way we pitched it to him, was we knew that the mayor has had a long record on protecting public health uh, for years as a philanthropist and as, as a mayor. He's put his personal, uh, part of his personal fortune and his name at uh, addressing threats to public health, from tobacco to junk yeah. foods, et cetera. And he also had a very strong issue in, uh, interest in addressing climate change. And what we said is that there's one issue that sits at the intersection of both. Uh, you really can't address public health comprehensively 
without looking at coal, and you definitely can't fight climate change without dismantling the power of the coal industry. Uh, and so we, we pitched him on, on joining the campaign. In the process of securing the grant, what he put us through was uh, a the most rigorous process you can possibly imagine to uh, what we did is we mapped out every single coal-fired boiler, every single coal plant in the country, every unit that burns coal to produce steam to power uh, electricity in the country, all 1,275 of them. We've got literally a, an Excel spreadsheet. Um, and we analyzed what pollution controls they have, what ability do they have to restrict mercury and soot and smog and greenhouse gases, how vulnerable those coal plants are um, because they're, they're simply they're a significant threat to uh, the local health in their communities, and then compared that to what, what's the solution? What ability do we really have in practical, pragmatic terms to not just talk about creating an ecological U-turn, but plant by plant to actually do that? And so from that analysis, we built up this commitment that we've made to uh, look at a third of the coal plants in five years, retire them, and bring in clean energy in a big way. The good news, just uh, 60 seconds on this, is that we're rocking on this. Uh, we have, since January of last year, a big movement of really great organizations. Uh, you know, Greenpeace, NRDC, uh, Credo, the phone company, Rainforest Action Network, hundreds of small, underfunded, uh, unrecognized grassroots groups. We've started to make headway at retiring these coal plants. Since January of last year, 10%, already 10% of the U.S. coal fleet has either already been shut down or will be shut down on a legally enforceable schedule uh, over the next several years. So when most folks say that environmentalists are back on their heels or that we're, we're running scared or we're not you know, building enough momentum, we're not winning, that's uh, not completely true. We actually are making great progress, uh, and the mayor is coming in on a campaign that's already been established and is giving it a lot of momentum to move forward. Michael Brun is executive director of uh, Sierra Club. Karen Tabaka. Craig, I just wanted to answer the question about Greenpeace and corporate campaign, mm-hmm. corporate sure. uh, funding. Never have, never will. Um, don't, and don't take any government money either. So individual donations and uh, institutional funding, foundations, family funds. But I would say the bulk, probably 80% of our funding comes from individuals. And um, we, ev- I've... I'm the chair of the board now, but I've served on the board for years. We've looked at this policy. Repeatedly, new board members come in. Should we look at this? Should we? Universally, everyone says no. No corporate funding. Let's turn to the, the big political uh, picture. About 13 months from now or so, next year, uh, Americans will go to the polls and, and vote for, for, for president. Uh, a lot of environmental groups uh, supported President Obama, but a lot are quite disappointed right now with him. How is your approach to uh, the Obama administration? What's their record so far? Michael? Uh, well, I, I think, uh, you know, I, I voted for the president. I froze uh, my tail off in January, um, standing there on his inauguration. Uh, I think that he, uh, he, I don't think he obviously inspired millions of people, not just to vote for him, but to believe in the democratic process of making our country stronger and the world a better place. If you look at his record, uh, certainly compared to his predecessor, it's been a almost 180-degree turn. And he's had uh, a strong set of clear victories and clear examples of why we need to vote and why we need to support people who care about the environment. Uh, as Felicia mentioned, we'll have a rule that will be announced later, finalized later this year to address for the first time heavy-duty trucks and the amount of oil that these trucks consume, which is a, a significant amount. Can't break our dependence on oil unless we address heavy-duty trucks. Cars and vehicles, we've made more progress in the last two and a half years than we did in the last 25 years at, again, breaking our dependence on oil and beginning to make our vehicles more efficient. And, and, you know, there's there's about dozens of other important, notable, really significant victories. And uh, there have been some gut-wrenching disappointments. You know, we, we we didn't get a comprehensive climate bill, even if it was a bill that could hardly be accused of being strong. Uh, there was not a, an, a, an effective response to the oil spill, both in terms of the spill itself or in reducing, uh, having a comprehensive plan to reduce our dependence on oil. And the president could have done more on both counts. And then just a couple weeks ago, we got another kick to the gut with uh, the president's decision to not issue strong standards on smog, the ozone rule. And so we, 
when you look at his likely opponents, uh, if you're an environmentalist, there's, it's hard to justify that there's a comparison. You know, clearly, the president has a strong record and a strong understanding of these issues. Uh, so, you know, personally, uh, uh, it'll be clear who, who, who will, I'll want to be supporting and who the Sierra Club will likely endorse. Um, I think the question is uh, how much people will work for him. And I just, I, it, it's hard for us to go to our base right now and ask people to work 16-hour days and to trudge in the snow and spend their weekends phone banking and to drive four hours to go to Reno and canvas there uh, and to do all the things that our members did all across the country last year. 25%, just a quick note, 25% of the people who volunteered for Obama in New Hampshire were Sierra Club members. So what we're saying to the White House uh, every day this morning is that we'll work for you when you work for us. And we've got a, a list of things that he has to deliver on uh, over the next couple months in order to fully uh, not just get the support, but to recapture the enthusiasm that he uh, helped to create a couple years ago. Karen, would you like to chime in on this? Well, I have my personal opinions, but I'm here to represent an organization that doesn't endorse candidates. So um, we have been organizationally happy with some of the things he's done and incredibly disappointed with his Friday before Labor Day decision on smog rules. But we don't endorse candidates. We don't. We have a C4 that could, but we don't. C4 meaning an entity that can involve That can be involved in donations. lobbying and, and, and um, political endorsements, but we choose not to. Um, personally, I voted for President Obama before. Uh, to be honest, I got nowhere else to go. And I will, and he knows it. He yeah. knows I have nowhere else to go. He doesn't know me personally, but he knows that a lot of us have nowhere else to go. So I'll end up voting for him. But I'm going to end up voting without the same enthusiasm I had the last time, unless personally I see him doing a lot of things differently in the next year that he did in the past three years. So um, I won't. I won't not vote. And I. And I won't, and there's nobody on the other side that I would vote for, so he will get a reluctant vote from me unless I see a really big difference. And organizationally, we are mute on the subject. Vote with an asterisk. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I would say, I'm figure out when I'm wearing my personal hat and my organizational hat. Let's start organizationally. No, let's just be personal. Um, <laughs> it's easier. Personal. No, it's very similar to the Greenpeace. We have a C4 that we don't use for electoral. I have to admit a certain, uh, 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 a bias or caveat here, which is that I was a part of the Clinton administration. And um, we had uh, similar challenges, and we had uh, a, a president who discovered by the end of his first term that the environment was a powerful populist message, and he really he turned into an environmentalist on many um, levels where he hadn't been before. But I, I did see the environmental movement at times um, adopting a let Al do it, <laughs> meaning Al Gore mm -hmm. philosophy. I mean, I think David Brower told me that he had a free Al Gore <laughs> bumper sticker <laughs> on his car. Um, but where um, it's like we forgot our fourth grade civics, which is the president doesn't get to do this himself. The president does it in the context of a very hostile legislature from time to time. Now, I think that President Clinton stood up and said, hell no, to a lot of the environmental writers and issues that um, were raised by the 94th Congress, which is the Congress that came in in the mid-90s, somewhat similar to the current Congress. And the, and the question is really, how do, how do we, uh, I don't want to even say measure a president, but how do we encourage and figure out how to get the president to be able to be strong on our issues? I think he's been stronger on a lot of our issues than uh, the president was at the beginning of the administration I was a part of. So I will probably give him more extra credit points for what he's done on those things we're really uh, helpful about and perhaps have more empathy for some of the hard decisions he's dealing with in an even more hostile Congress and public than we felt in the 90s. Uh, the Tea Party is a new phenomenon. The Fox News round-the-clock message soundbite makes it very hard to deal with these complex issues. And I think that the Congress he's dealing with is beyond anything um, that we experienced in the in the 90s, so I'm willing to cut him a little more slack. That said, there are some issues during the next uh, uh, 
15 months that are going to be very important, and he has a choice about whether he's going to stand up and articulate to the American people why that's important. He has been superb at that from times. I mean, his message on creating, coming out of the economy by creating the uh, the energy and economy of the future as opposed to rebuilding the past was brilliant. He was better on our talking points than we were. So I want to see that Obama in the next 15 months, one, speaking personally. One area, uh, Felicia Marcus is Western Director of the National Resources Defense Council. Uh, one area where the president has executive authority is on the Keystone Pipeline mm, from Canada. Yeah. That does not involve Congress, and it looks like it's he's going in the direction of, of approving that. Uh, what are the consequences of that? Michael Brune? I mean, Giant. Keystone XL, is that something that, that is that going to... Uh, he's going to lose some environmentalists over that, or as Karen Tavakian says, there's nowhere for them to go, so we can approve Keystone and pay no price. Let me talk about the consequences for our country uh, and not mm-hmm. just the president's political ambitions because I think they're even more severe. Uh, the Keystone XL pipeline is a pipeline that would carry some of the dirtiest oil on the planet down from Canada. It's a 1,700-mile-long pipeline that would basically cut the country in two and uh, would take oil from Canada all the way down to the Gulf. Most of it would actually be exported out of the country, wouldn't even be used by the United States. And it's a concern of ours because the greenhouse gas intensity of tar sands oil, it's, it's not even uh, oil as you traditionally think of it uh, because it's, it's uh, thick uh, uh, bitumen uh, that has to get um, basically melted in order to be drug, uh, drilled up and then converted into more uh, conventional oil that's used to power our cars and trucks. So it's highly greenhouse gas intensive to get and then to transport. Uh, the 1,700-mile-long pipeline would go through the Oglala Aquifer in, in Nebraska, which is the uh, largest freshwater aquifer in the United States, uh, and it supplies uh, pure drinking water and irrigation water for up to a third of the farms in the Farm Belt in the Midwest. As you might have noticed, oil pipelines leak and they spill. There are more than 100 major oil spills that happen every year. So this pipeline will leak. It's just not a, it's not a question of whether, it's a question of when and where. And then when the oil reaches its final destination point, it will be refined and it'll increase the, the pollution burden uh, that is faced by local communities. It's dirtier oil, so it will mean that more people will get cancers, more people will have reproductive disorders, more people will have uh, severe respiratory disorders because of refining this oil. And then at the same time, what this means in terms of infrastructure investments in this country is that we will be putting tens of billions of dollars perpetuating our dependence on dirty oil. When those dollars, every dollar, every million dollars, every billion dollars we put uh, into fossil fuels is much better directed towards a clean energy future. So we're opposed to it. <laughs> so uh, the consequence for the president is, is pretty profound because on major issues like this, it typically takes an act of Congress or some partnership between the administration and Congress to pass any kind of comprehensive bill. This one is unique in that the sole decision-making authority lies within the executive branch. And it re- literally, specifically, is up to the president to decide whether or not to allow this pipeline to come into the United States. It also is a political issue because we already have uh, people throughout the route of the pipeline who are vehemently opposed to this. Sierra Club did a press conference today with the Tea Party in Texas. Hmm. Let me say that again. (laughs) (laughs) The Sierra Club today did a a press conference with the Tea Party in Texas because they are furious about this pipeline because it's being forced down their throats. It's being forced on the lands of ranchers throughout the community in Texas. We're working with the two senators from Nebraska and the governor of Nebraska, all Republicans who are opposed to this. And communities every step of the way over the 1,700 miles are opposed to this pipeline. So this, from a political perspective, this won't just be the Keystone pipeline. This will be Obama's pipeline. This will be the Obama pipeline that will be fought over in in the courts and in communities along the route of this for the rest of his political year career. If his political career ends in January of 2013 or if it extends another four years, he will be fighting this and defending building a massive pipeline for the rest of his term in office. And so what we're saying to him is, don't you really think that there's a better way? Don't you think that there's an opportunity we have right now to plant our flag and move more aggressively towards a clean energy future? We will save more oil through efficiency and a transition to electric vehicles 
than we would possibly can possibly import from the tar sands. And so that's the case that we're making. Final thing I'll say is that it is not at all clear that the administration will approve this. It's not at all clear. We know that there is uh, an active conversation in the administration about whether or not to go forward. And so all of you who are members of Sierra Club Greenpeace NRDC, active on environmental issues, if you've got some spare time, if you've got some spare passion, devote it to this issue because the next 90 days is when this decision will be made. And it's one of the most important decisions uh, that we face in terms of our energy policy in the country today. Well, I would add something that, that's, that's at the peril of being wonky. Um, this issue is kind of a wonky issue, but it's one that people really should weigh in on because the decision in this odd way that, um, that the president gets to make is about whether approving this pipeline is in the national interest. And it is not in the national Which interest. Which includes jobs, mm-hmm. economy. It's not just an it's energy. It, it does. And the interesting thing about this particular um, issue is there, there are domestic pipelines that can get, that are already sending a million, whatever it is, whatever the unit, thank there, you, yeah. barrels per day of this into the U.S. and pipelines that can get it nearly anywhere that wants it right now. I'd rather they didn't want it, but it's already there. The only value of this pipeline with all of the destructive elements that Michael so beautifully explained is for export other places. And what it will do is make the price of this stuff more expensive within the United States. So it, it is a, a ludicrous thing to think that it's in the national interest to approve this. And But because it is kind of a wonky issue, it is really important to be able to make that heard above the noise in D.C. so that the president really gets the full understanding, his staff gets the full understanding of just how damaging a decision for this would be. If you're just uh, joining us, our guests today at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club are Felicia Marcus, Western Director of NRDC, Michael Brune, Executive Director of the Sierra Club, and Karen Topakian, Board Chair at Greenpeace USA. I'm Greg Dalton. A full podcast of this program is available in the iTunes store at the Climate One podcast. We're going to put a microphone out here now and invite you to uh, come for audience questions. Again, if you're on this side of the room, you can go out that door. The line forms... uh, back there, and uh, we'll take your questions one by one. I encourage you to um, be briefly conclude as, as many as possible. While that's getting going, um, can, I, can sure, I just Karen answer on the tar sands one? Sure. Um, Greenpeace has worked with a lot of the activist groups around the country and provided our resources, our tools, mm-hmm. our uh, direct action training, all of those things for people who are opposing this, the big demonstrations that took place at the White House earlier. But I want to say something about the president's leadership. This president, I believe, really wants to be seen as a leader. And he really wants to, I think he, I mean, I think every president wants to be seen as a leader. But I think he wants to be seen as an environmental leader. And I think the way to do that on this issue was he will win the undying support of environmentalists if he says no to Keystone. He will absolutely win, and I think it will motivate a lot of people who may not have supported him and have been angry about other things to flip that right around and be extremely happy with him for doing this. And the price he has to pay for not doing it is the price that Mike just described. He's going to be living with this, and we're going to be living with this for decades to come. So if he really wants to show leadership skills and on the environment, this is one of the ways he can do it. He'll hit a home run on this one, absolutely. We also should mention the AFL, CIO, and Teamsters have endorsed this $7 billion pipeline. It's a big jobs thing in, in a terrible economy. So it's, it's a complex thing. Sure. But there are more ways to create jobs that are, there are than pipelines. And there yes. are as many unions opposed to the pipeline right. as there are in favor of it. Okay. Thank you. Uh, let's have audience question, please. Hi. Thank you very much uh, for creating this wonderful conversation. I'm Wendy Lee from Los Altos Hills. Uh, this question is for Michael. Uh, Michael, if um, what what... Thank you for taking down the, the old coal plant. So what, what, what exactly does it take to take one down? As it is, do you have to buy the property, then get a permit to tear down and build? And if you have, uh, if you have uh, a choice, what would make it easier for your job to take it down instead of go through all those processes? And lastly... Let's, uh, let's leave it there. So de- de- thank you. Decommissioning coal plants, Michael. Okay. Uh, so there, there's a... Basically, you have to make a case for how you can keep the lights on and the economy running uh, through a different energy source. So in the past couple years, when we've been fighting new coal plants from being built, the case wasn't that difficult because what would happen is that utilities often will make more money 
dependent on the more power that they're selling. And so the, they're, they would in, often inflate the projected demand, the, the demand for how much electricity would be required. And so we would be able to go in to regu- state regulators and say, we don't need this much electricity, and if we do, we can provide it from better sources. Now the challenge is to say the existing coal plant that's down the road that's been operating for 50 years, we make a couple different arguments. One is to say uh, it's dirty and to point out in very real terms what the pollution impact is, how much soot is being emitted, how much smog is being emitted, how much mercury, greenhouse gases, and then highlight in real practical terms that there's a better way, that if we phase out that plant over three, four, five years, that there is a real opportunity to produce power uh, from clean energy sources. So what combination of energy efficiency, solar, wind, geothermal, uh, can keep that plant or uh, keep the meet the demand for local energy in, in the neighborhood? And then to talk about the people who work there and how we can make sure that we're taking care of the 200 or 150 or 300 people who work at that plant, how they can be transitioned to a future, a set of future energy sources at the same time. So that's the technical conversation that happens with the decision makers. But around that is a battle that takes place where the fossil fuel companies will come in and they'll accuse us of being anti-American, anti-business, communist, pinko, tree-hugger, hippie freaks from San Francisco. (laughs) And we say, uh, well, we are from San Francisco, but uh, rest not so much. And so, you know, so what we will do is we will have a, uh, a fight over the airwaves and in the grassroots about what's the future direction of our country. And the case that we make is that there's real genuine prosperity to be won here in a transition to clean energy, that it's not just about pollution, but it's about what kind of country we want to live in. And so it happens in both, in both spheres. Michael Brun is executive director of the Sierra Club. Next audience question, please. Hi there, John Gelbard from Conservation Value. Thoreau said something to the effect of, for every thousand hacking at the leaves of evil, there's but one tending to its root. I look at a lot of the deep systemic issues that are plaguing our uh, system, our political system and our economic system. Politically, um, we have a, a situation where you have to raise so much money to get elected to public office that it almost seems like our politicians are spending more time thinking about where the money is going to come from and how to return the favor than they are acting in the public interest. Similarly, for our economic system, our, all the externalities are not, you know, are basic, are not internalized at all. Mm-hmm. So. Our, literally, our, econo- our economic system and the way that we use and value the ecology that underlies our economy um, does not reflect biophysical reality. And I say this as a scientist. Um, if you could so you speak, your question is, are we getting to the roots? Yeah. Uh, what are your organizations doing to tend to the root? Well, I'll, Alicia Marcus. I'll, I'll take a start, which may seem somewhat pedestrian. I completely agree with you, and I think part of the challenge is, is hitting it. I always say on every level, belt suspenders, flying monkeys, you know, whatever it takes. <laughs> and um, and it's a, at, at one end of the spectrum, we need to touch people's hearts and lives in a way that's really important, and that is something that deals with our language and who we support and who we ally ourselves with, and there are organizations that uh, spend their whole time trying to work on that. The other is really actually understanding economics, which I think the environmental world um, shied away from as evil in some ways for all too long, and I think we're all becoming a lot smarter about it. I mean, for us, it's hiring people who understand how to create uh, the financial incentives that make the market work in a more traditional and working with those allies and working on those levers for, say, energy efficiency. In another, it's dealing with those externalities and using the existing regulatory system to try and level that playing field. So I would say the one thing... Missing from Michael's excellent presentation on how you fight coal-fired power plants, which also fits in with um, Obama's next 15 months, is you need EPA regulating the crap out of these dirty fuels, and they need that ability to do it, and they're being uh, harassed and stymied. So in some ways, while it's not glamorous to say that you want to defend regulation, which people are saying is synonymous with job killing, which is absolutely false. Regulations have created jobs as well as an incredible bounty of public uh, health protection 
uh, which is valuable in its own right, we need to be not only messaging on those points, but also calling things as they are, which is that um, right now coal-fired power plants have a, a free giveaway and a free uh, subsidization of the true costs of their work that are borne not only by public subsidies of their crazy thick roads and any number of actual subsidies, but through the, the lungs and the health and the brain development of our children. And that's just wrong. And so being able to really call it like it is and protect what can seem like these arcane regulatory structures is incredibly important right now. And there is, we are in, you know, people talk about class warfare. We are in, in a paradigm shift. You end up with forces who have things to lose or gain being really entrenched. I mean, it's not like the Copernican Revolution where people are going to be burnt at the stake um, for not adopting a worldview. But the fossil fuel economy is fighting like mad for its life, and we need to get the tools that um, can make us more successful. Let's go. Yeah, Michael, real quick. Real fast. So, John, right? Thanks. Great question. Uh, I wanted to throw three things out there. So first, we believe that you're right and that the environmental crisis is rooted in a deeper crisis of democracy. Three big obstacles to affecting deeper change are uh, voter suppression efforts that are happening all across the country right now, uh, a severe problem for a lot of the values that we hold at the Sierra Club and other groups do as well, um, campaign finance reform, the, the Citizens United decision of a couple years ago allowing unfettered and secret donations from corporations pollutes our democracy as well as our air and water. Uh, and then the third issue is something I'm having trouble remembering right now. Um, but it's also really important. And, I'll talk with you <laughs> and it's, I'm sure it's really good. Too. I saw a Facebook fo- post the other day that said, I'll believe when it is, uh, corporations are a, uh, a citizen when Texas executes one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, next question, far. please. Hello, I'm Dave Masson with Citizens Climate Lobby. I appreciate all your comments today and all of your uh, efforts and uh, certainly support your uh, thoughts about pursuing other opportunities besides the U.S. Congress. Citizens Climate Lobby remains focused on Congress, where we have a proposal in which both parties showed interest when we were on Capitol Hill. It's called Carbon Fee and Dividend, placing a steadily rising fee on the carbon content of fossil fuel and returning all revenue to households in monthly green checks. James Hansen is behind it and also on our advisory board and incidentally was arrested in Washington and uh, demonstrations against the Keystone Pipeline. And Representative Stark is introducing legislation based on the concept. My question is, would your organization support a carbon fee and rebate program as an optimum framework at the national level? That's a very good question that you asked, Dave, because Greenpeace has has a weak support of cap and trade and a, and a much stronger support of a carbon tax. So I actually would like to talk to you uh, more about that because I think that actually is a much better solution. And we've mildly invo- endorsed the cap and trade, and we have been part of those conversations but for me personally, the carbon tax is going to be the solution. So when we finish, I would love to talk to you more about what you're doing and how we can work together. Thank you for raising it. Any others on uh, cap and dividend or fee and dividend? No, I'd like to hear more, too. I think for us it's a question, what can you get the number of votes you need to move the ball forward? So that's 60 votes in the Senate question. Uh-huh. And sure, we, we think it's a great concept. It could work. interested in the details of uh, Stark's bill. I haven't seen it yet, but we're definitely supportive. And the other third thing was Senate rules. We, we can't get to, in yeah. fact, the person left. Um, I'll call you, and it's Senate rules. We, yeah, right now you have a oh, tiny sure, minority yeah. in the Senate who stymie any kind of progress, and uh, we have to restore democracy even to U.S. Congress. Got a few minutes left here. Quickly, next question, please. Hi. Yes, thank you. Patricia Port, San Francisco. I was very impressed that you have mapped out the coal-generating fire, coal-fired generating plants. And I was wondering if you could map out the Keystone pipeline proposed and see if you could actually come up with some sites where either wind or solar power could be generated and go to our friends in labor and say, you want high-paying jobs, but the ones you're going to get with a pipeline are real short-term. Here are some concrete examples of where you could generate wind power, solar power, along the same route for those same folks who need jobs. 
and take a look, because I think they can be allies. I think the canard about the environment and the economy being at odds is exactly that. And I also hope you are getting everybody you know to talk to Stephen Chu. Thank you. Um, who will be here uh, next April, by the way. Let's have a next audience. Too late. Yes. Yeah, for that one. Yeah. Hi. Um, you've been talking primarily about uh, oil and gas, and I wonder if you would um, mention any work you're doing with the huge agro farms, with the cattle that I understand Al Gore said has uh, raises 20% of the greenhouse gases. Uh, in the United States, and I'm just wondering if you're looking at that because that becomes a vicious circle because the fast food companies buy food from them, which our kids eat, and then they get sick, and you got to – so it's that, that whole thing is a vicious circle. So I'm just wondering if you're looking at that as part of the climate issue too. Yeah, I, I would say yes. Lisa Marcus. Sorry, yes, definitely um, we are uh, both linked to the climate – our climate work. Um, which is, it readily gets your attention on any number of fronts because it has to deal with deforestation uh, internationally as well as uh, subsidies of corn and all the, all the things you talked about um, in an integrated way. The, the other thing that we're focusing on in our initiative here, which is, uh, I would say, just as horrifying, I'm not going to compete. You know, I frequently will say we're going to poison ourselves before we toast the planet, so let's not forget all the other things. Um, that we also have to work on that affect people, and that has to do with the intense overuse of antibiotics in uh, cattle in particular, but in all animals in these confined animal feeding operations that have really evolved uh, at massive scale over the past decade or so, maybe a little bit more, that just in the 90s people were starting to recognize, and, and it, it hit first in talking about the incredible challenge to water quality with fisteria in the in the Chesapeake Bay where confined animal feedlots largely for pigs would have runoff that was creating this breeding ground for really serious uh, disease. And then there are the climate issues. But the issue of antibiotics where they are used not only because the animals are in close proximity so they can get sick, but because for some reason it makes them grow bigger, which is in the interest of farmers who get paid by the pound. And, and FDA has completely dropped the ball on that. So we recently filed a a lawsuit um, over their delay in dealing with it. You should, they, we should not be able to use antibiotics um, that profligately and without any kind of regulation in our, our food because it's, it, it is increasing the resistance to um, antibiotics, and we're the ones who are going to get sick, let alone pigs, cows, bad, and chickens. Let's have a next audience question, please. Hi, I'm Clara Vondrich with ClimateWorks Foundation. Thank you so much for um, just your spirit of positivity and optimism. It's really important right now. Um, a colleague of mine just got back from a McKinsey workshop that he's part of, and they said that there's um, the new 450 is 500 ppm, and there's absolutely no chance, um, or in their view, no chance of living in a 450 world, which was really depressing. Um, on the issue of Obama's sort of, you know, struggles and, and rollbacks on some of the stronger um, EPA regulations, the mercury rule, the ozone rule. Um, I just saw a little report yesterday that he um, that there's been a delay of the proposed rule for the CAFE standards, and I'm just wondering whether or not that's something to worry about. Um, it's just apparently till November, but I'm just sort of gun-shy right now and everything that, that happens in that regard. I'm, I'm worried that it's just going to be, you know, another, another rollback. Um, so that was one question. And the second one is um, congratulations on your Bloomberg uh, donation on coal. That's huge, and coal is probably the biggest issue of our time. But despite, you know, a huge victory in the U.S., um, presuming those go forward, what about China? I mean, they have all these unbelievable um, renewable programs, um, but at the same time, they're just building um, coal, new coal at a breakneck speed. And I just wonder what we can do about that going forward. China, quickly, we got we got to wrap up. But China is a big part of it. I mean, they we could stop burning fossil fuels today, and it wouldn't matter because China would blow everything out of the water. Yeah, well, a question is to Michael. I could talk a little bit about China. I'll just say on the delay quickly and then uh. let, let um, other people answer because I'm very polite. It, that, and that is um, it, it remains to be seen. I mean, he also delayed the greenhouse gas rules. And allegedly, you want to get those right. So you've raised the right question, which is, is it a delay to get them right? Because you really do need to get them right in a hostile political environment, or is it a, a delay that's a, another loss? And, and we're all watching that, too. We talked a lot about Keystone, but both of those are on the list. And we, and we don't know exactly what it means yet. Can I answer the China one? Since Greenpeace is a global international organization present in 41 countries with 2.8 million supporters, we do play a role in China, and I can't say today that we're working on the coal issue, but it's something that's on 
it is definitely on the radar of the people who work in that country about coal. And we are concerned because of the lack of transparency, the lack of access to citizen participation and opposition in China makes it very difficult for that. But having an office and being president in that country helps us move that agenda along in China as needed when necessary. Michael Brune, last word on, on China. Okay, so it's a couple things that we can do to get at China. Obviously, it's a huge issue. Can't stop climate change unless you solve the China challenge, and a big part of that is coal. So from the U.S., at least, our leverage is, is somewhat limited, but it's not zero. And I think I can highlight three quick things in the last 30 seconds we have. So one is uh, we have great power over in- international finance, financial institutions, right? So the World Bank and IMF and all of the export credit agencies uh, around the world. Uh, The U.S. has a very powerful role in dictating policy for those institutions about whether or not they'll invest hundreds of millions of dollars, or in many cases billions of dollars, in new coal plants or redirect it towards more positive alternatives. So there's a key leverage point there. Second one is more of a moral point and uh, a, a, a challenge of leadership that when the U.S. has a record of shutting down 10%, 20%, 30%, 40% coal plants, and we're growing our economy uh, through clean energy. Right now, Iowa's at 20% wind. Colorado's growing dramatically. It'll be at 30% wind and solar by next year. When our economy has a model, and we've got dozens of examples of what this turnaround looks like, our leadership as a country will be really powerful and will be able to be extended to other other countries, China included. And then the third piece is... uh, more bottoms up. So what the Sierra Club is starting to do uh, is we're, in, for Chinese activists, India, uh, people in South Africa who are fighting coal plants, is we're building a, an international coal nerve center where all the lessons that we've learned from about a decade now of fighting new coal plants is being extended to uh, other organizations and other movements across the country to start to share about what, white, what might work across different cultures and in different contexts. Because there's usually a core set of things that happen in every in every case in every country. So that's something that we want to build on and work with uh, other organizations to help strengthen. Can I add one thing? I know we're trying to close, but it just as a sort of advertisement if it's recorded, we did do a session on China here about a year ago that I was on. We, we have we, we also have an office in China, and our focus has been on energy efficiency, largely where the Jiangsu province in particular is making huge strides. The thing with China is that they are looking not just at uh, creating coal-fired power plants and energy for its own sake because it's so much fun. Mm -hmm. Um, They're doing it because they're trying to lift billions of people out of poverty, and energy is an essential um, input into that economic development. So we're working really hard to help them develop in a cleaner, greener way. But I think the comments, all of us are working in China because it is, you know, it's as Willie Sutton said, why you rob banks? It's because it's where the money is. In this case, it's where the emissions are. Uh, we have to end it there. Our thanks to our guests today, Karen Topakian, board chair of Greenpeace USA, Michael Brune, executive director of the Sierra Club, Felicia Marcus, Western director of NRDC. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for coming. This is the end of the Climate One. Thanks. Thank you.